March 20th, 2008, and welcome to episode number four of the Vegas Gang podcast. Um, my name is Hunter, and I run a site called RateVegas.com. Welcome to all of our listeners. Uh, I'm going to go around the uh, round, the round uh, make-believe table here and uh, introduce uh, my participants. So uh, from VegasTripping.com, I have Chuck. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Excellent, excellent. Uh, from the Las Vegas Advisor, uh, David McKee, how are you today? Fine, sir. Excellent. Uh, from uh, the Las Vegas Sun, Jeff Simpson. Uh, greetings. Hello, everybody. And uh, from UNLV and the DiusCast.com, uh, Dave Schwartz, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be here as always. Excellent. Um, one of the things that is a uh, an important announcement, I think, is that this podcast now has its own website. Um, in interest of uh, of making it a little bit easier to get it out there, and since I think it's uh, an interesting topic that people want to be able to keep up on, we um, posted a site for the podcast. So the the, the uh, URL for those that are interested uh, is uh, www.vegasgangpodcast.com. So uh, that will be where all new shows are posted, and any kind of announcements about the uh, about the show will show up there too. So feel free to sign up there. There's a link you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or uh, directly if you'd like. And uh, to get on. Man, sounds like I'm uh, driving through a tunnel. Yeah, I mean, you might want to dial back in. Hot. Is that me? That's crazy. I think that might be Jeff. You know, um, I am on my porch, and the reason I did that is because uh, my uh, my I'm worried I'm at home, and I'm worried that my dog is going to bark like crazy. Uh, well, you know what? Don't worry about the dog. My dog, I think, barked last time. It's not a problem. Uh, I would probably say dog dog noise is better than wind noise. Um, All right. If I have to, cho- if I get to choose. <laughs> All right, there you go. See? Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um so we uh we are hopefully going to be joined today by uh by Christina Binkley and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She is the author of a book called Winner Take All, which is a look at um the Las Vegas gaming industry, including uh, a couple of notable figures, including uh, Kirk Kerkorian and Steve Wynn and to uh to some degree uh Gary Loveman and, and Harris. Uh with a slight occasional mention of um, Mr. Grumpy Adelson. Um, so I, I know I read the book. It was a book actually that I was looking forward to for quite a while just because there's not that much of this stuff published on the topic and it seemed like a pretty juicy uh, tome. Um, I, you know, I enjoyed it, uh, especially some of the more um, – some of the more interesting bits. I mean, you've got part, you've got passages in there where uh, you hear the inside track on, you know, how uh, how out there Steve Wynn was, was with spending Mirage Resorts money and the crazy things that Dan Lee thought he would never do. Dan Lee was a CFO of Mirage Resorts before he went on to run Pinnacle um, and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, I thought those kinds of stories were very were very interesting. Um, Christina is a Wall Street Journal reporter, so she's definitely uh, ha- has a pedigree. Um, in dealing with uh, business topics. What did you guys think of the book? I'm curious. I'm assuming that everyone or almost everyone's read it at this point. Well, I, I this is Jeff Simpson, and I thought it was a, a very, very good book. Um, she she really took the access she had to folks. And, be, you know, she she's a great reporter and with a, uh, 
a great paper and so had excellent access. Um, my judgment is that she probably didn't have access to Sheldon Adelson or much, and I certainly could relate to that since the guys never said word one to me. Um, but I think she had uh, very good access for most of the time she was writing the book to win, and then great access to Gary Loveman and um, you know not a, no access to Kirk Kerkorian, but but fantastic access to. Um, Terry Lanny, Jim Murren, and Alan Feldman from MGM Mirage. So she was really able to, and and she had such good sources who were willing. And my perspective is she talked to them, you know, and there's a lot of background stuff in there, and I have a feeling that some of these on-the-record sources are also excellent background sources, although we can't expect her to confirm that. But uh, my my judgment is that they really gave her some uh, – some great stuff, some stuff that, you know, people, regular um, readers of the of newspapers aren't going to aren't going to know about some of these uh, some of these players. And in particular, um, I really enjoyed sort of knowing all of these people that she's writing about. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Dan Lee and Jim Murren, even on the record, had some uh, some very uh, great, you know, interesting things to say about about uh when i thought that the uh harris people um we got a really we had a really good understanding of gary of gary loveman and uh so it was pretty it was i found it to be an entertaining and uh and uh inf- you know good a, a book with good information i i you know it's funny it's some of the themes that i that i felt kind of ran through the book where you know harris are marketing geniuses that beau rivage was the thing that sunk mirage resorts uh, that and excessive spending. That Kirkorian is, you know, this cool player that keeps coming back in and always seems to win in the end. I mean, there's some of these themes that, that seem to be predominant through the book. But um, yeah, I agree. It was, uh, it seemed to be very well sourced, and I was surprised at some of the things that um, ex ex win employees and um, you know folks that have done deals with him were willing to say on the record. <laughs> it was kind of funny, um, sort of deflating him a little bit, which is because he's obviously sort of a larger than life character in the in the industry. And, and and you know something that's that's absolutely right. I think the essential nature of those businesses comes through. Um, you know, when um, when is you know I think design um, um, is certainly primary with that company. Um, if you look at MGM Mirage, um, it has been a deal making company. Um, they really haven't built that many properties, but they've certainly acquired a number of fantastic ones. And then Harris, you're, you're you're absolutely right. It is a marketing powerhouse company that's um, you know almost a decade ahead, probably of uh, most of its um, competitors in the business. And and those you know it's really what those CEOs, what or you know in Kerkorian's case, the majority investor, it's what they what they enjoy. And so I found it to be, uh, you know, just fantastic because those companies really do uh, sort of um, epitomize what their number one people um, really do. Yeah, I think it was really good at at talking a little bit about uh, some of the Harris people. I think the people generally know Harris Total Rewards. I think she was pretty successful at showing the more human side of that and some of the you know ambivalence that some of the managers might have. You know, I don't know. It's a bit. There were some editorial things that I thought were a little bit strange, like with the Mandalay MGM 
a storyline that kind of goes with this very timeline type uh, style that's different from the rest of the book. But I thought all in all, it was really good. For the for the more uh, touristy listeners and uh, participants, which would be me, uh, uh, if, if you've read uh, Super Casino, this is kind of like a sequel of that to a degree, uh, with with the second kind of wave of of uh, you know what's what's happened in Vegas here. Uh, one, I took a lot of great things out of this book. Um, one of the uh, despite MGM Mirage's Bravado, which was on display when they made it out. Maybe next year we'll have our uh, earnings call at, at Wynn Resorts, you know, alluding to a uh, possible future takeover again. Uh, you know, it seems like this the, the ghost Steve Wynn is alive and well in the halls at MGM Mirage. And and I almost think that the, the, the scope and hugeness of, of City Center is possibly their way of kind of trying to break that. Uh, to a degree, um, but if you, if, I don't know if you guys have the book available or if anybody uh, who's listening to this, uh, you know, uh, Steve Wynn said there's a quote in there on uh, page 122 where Steve says that uh, the age of huge casino resorts was over. Uh, he wanted to be at, in the forefront of a revolution, a return to small and intimate establishments. If we're right about this, if we're right about this, there'll never be another mega resort. And he's referring to uh, Le Jardin, which was uh, supposed to be where MGM Grand AC is supposed to be. Uh, and he referred to it as very petite, very lovely. It's one hotel masquerading as three hotels, which to a degree you could say is, you know, what uh, city center is. Uh, to a degree is what you could say almost directly. You know, one hotel masquerading as three hotels is what MGM Grand Atlantic City is. Uh, so. The- Mm-hmm. But how many mega resorts has Wynn built since he made that statement? At least two, by my count. True. Well, and you know, but neither of them, but both of them, um, twenty-seven hundred rooms and two thousand rooms, and then smaller than that in Macau. Um, and I think that you know you're seeing the same thing with uh, with Echelon, um, and you know the the idea is. You know, you sort of spread people around in in different properties. The center will have a big center casino, but certainly the Mandarin Oriental and the Harmon um, will be separate boutique hotels. Echelon has three of them. And uh, I think that, you know, I mean, I mean I, you know, he, he does tend to make the grandiose pronouncements, and it's probably a little um, bit of hyperbole to say the age of the mega resort is dead, but it certainly ha- has been, you know, it's evolved. And you know he's. It, it, I think it would be probably ridiculous to say that he hasn't been a big part of that evolution. Yeah, I think that the, that that statement really shows one of the big design questions that Wynn has been grappling with, which is how do you build a 2,700-room hotel and still have it be intimate? And I think really in, in Wynn and in Encore, he's really been trying to get that sense of intimacy across while still having a big hotel. So, I, you know, I think while maybe that was kind of overstated, I think definitely this is something he's been, you know, trying to do. And I think it's much more likely that that – the casinos we're going to see coming out in the next five years are going to be a lot more like Win Encore than they will like the original MGM Grand, which is just a big 5,000-room monstrosity. I think there's well, no I, doubt. Well, I think it was, it was a 
for me, it was a, a hilarious miscalculation on his part to, for, for the understandable reason of reducing his exposure on the hotel side of things in Macau, which is a somewhat unproven hotel market, he just built a midget version <laughs> of of Wynn Las Vegas. So, I mean, when it's shot in isolation, it looks impressive. But when you see the long shots where it's, where, where it's juxtaposed with the other buildings in the vicinity, it looks ludicrous. It's, it's well, a, I, you know, and, and a mini-me version of, of <laughs> the original. I, you know, I, I think in, 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 in context and when it was built, now certainly after it was built, you had – um, the the Grand Lisboa, you have the MGM the MGM Grand, and you have the uh, the Galaxy property that's right next door, and those those are larger hotels. But it's hard to say that that the the design of these other buildings somehow has um, reduced the performance of Win Macau, which oh no, um, which which certainly on a table but for table basis and in terms of the capacity of the high end um, is doing exceptionally well at the high end. I think it's it's fair to say that um, he has um, taken a very big share of the high end away from Stanley Ho. And in Las Vegas, um, it's indisputable that he owns the high end. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I don't I, I think that you know they and I think that they're one of the things in trying to create that win brand. You know their first three hotels share a look. Now will every hotel that they continue to build look like that? My hunch is that they will not. But um, they certainly share a look out of the box with with the first three hotels and the performance of the first two has been, you know, very robust. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not really a design specialist, but I don't think the the outward appearance of those properties is the, is the most significant design feature. I think Dave Schwartz had it when he talked about those intimate settings in the interior that, you know, you know, dozens and hundreds of places where people can feel that they are getting a special a special perspective, a special view, um, and I think that he's done that probably better than any other any other builder to date. And I think it's interesting because I think those um, – um, I don't know if Jeff feels this way too, but if you've ever talked to, to Wynn personally, he makes it seem like he's telling you something and he's telling you and only you because you're his best friend in the world. So he's able to kind of – telegraph that same intimacy in conversation i'm sure he does the same you know when he when he's talking to investors and, and people like that it's kind of interesting that he's doing the same thing in his trying to do the same thing in his architecture as he does personally interesting point i, I agree i uh, i would say that maybe one of the uh, criticisms i've heard of the book is that it underplays sheldon adelson and las vegas sands and their contribution to what is modern las vegas strip um, you know, how big of a deal is that? Is that a critical failing of this book? And uh, it's huge. So, David, it's I know that a, you've been you're critical crit on that level. What do you think? Yes, it's it's just a gape. There's just a gaping hole where uh, where Sheldon and his uh, his impact on the on the Las Vegas business model ought to be. Uh, I mean, his certainly in terms of of um, you know 
leveraging a, a mega resort on the, the convention business, that was, um, I mean, that was a big risk that paid off for him. He also has been the most aggressive and arguably the most successful at extending his brand outward from Las Vegas. I mean, certainly, I mean, so much of what happens on the Strip is defined by the Win Adelson rivalry. That and that's been such a dynamic of the last de- ten years that to or longer that to omit it seems almost perverse. But I mean, you know, it's, and and he and Win are like they're they're like mirror images because Win is the sort of person he's so focused on the on the trees that sometimes he can be accused of missing the forest. I mean, except for Macau, he has not been able to extend his brand to any other markets. Um, whereas Adelson is perhaps too focused on on the big picture. I mean, if if Steve Wynn opened, I mean, if Steve Wynn owned Palazzo and it opened the way it did, I mean, it would be the ruination of his reputation. I mean, the fact is Steve Wynn would not allow Palazzo to open in the fashion that it did, but Adelson doesn't really care about those things. I think he just figures it'll all work out in the wash. In the meantime, what's the next new territory that we can open up? Well, I think you know. I think it's an interesting point. I mean, I, you know, I definitely think that uh, that not having Adelson in there is you know unfortunate. Uh, as as Jeff, one of the things that Jeff said before we started is you know. It, it maybe it just came down to access. Um, I, I know <clears throat> that many people have complained about access to Adelson. Now, obviously, she could write something without having direct access. But how big of a problem is that? I mean, ha, ha, as you you know, I've got several journalists on the call. Um, how does that make her job impossible from that perspective? Well, and I, I guess it depends on what her goal was in writing the book. I mean, if she wants to write a comprehensive book on the movers and players on the strip. I think, you know, John L. Smith, uh, you know, wrote a book that came out two years ago, Sharks in the Desert, um, that had um, and landed him in legal hot water. Um, But he took a stab at at talking about almost all these folks, certainly Kerkorian, certainly Loveman and Wynn and Adelson. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that was her goal. Um, but, you know, would the book have been better with, with um, Adelson included? I think it would. I mean, but I don't think that that um, undermines the value of the book. I think that it, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other people in the business who've been very, you know, and maybe not as significant as Adelson has with his convention-oriented resort, which is really the big thing that he did in Las Vegas. Um, he, you know, he introduced that convention model to shore up midweek, um, revenue and, uh, to boost midweek revenue. Um, and that's, you know, that was a great innovation, um, swiftly copied by what was then Mandalay resort group at Mandalay Bay, um, to a, to a lesser and smaller extent at, at the MGM grand with their conference center. Um, but I think that it's hard to say that um, I think that when you look at the at at the at the strip, I mean, and certainly Wynn and Adelson have the biggest personalities on the strip. I would agree with David there. But MGM Mirage has ten big properties on the strip. 
Harris has six, if you include the Rio as being on the strip. And Wynn and Adelson, um, at the time she was writing, each had one property open. So, you know, now, now Wynn built, you know, three of the MGM Mirage properties and shared ownership with, uh, shared ownership of, of uh, Monte Carlo for a while and then built Wynn Resort. So, you know, for during the time period that Christina was covering the, the gaming business, I don't think that it is incorrect to see those three guys as the biggest players in the business. Um, we've been here. This is Christina Binkley, and I would like to apologize for, for signing in late here. <laughs> no it problem. sounds like Glad you're talking you about join. Sheldon Adelson. We are. We were we talking. Are. Well, first off, let me say welcome. This is uh, my name's Hunter. I'm the uh, host of this show. Thank you, Hunter. Um, Good to be here. And yeah, we've been talking about your book, and uh, a lot of a lot of compliments all around the table. So uh, I'll just make sure that, we, that you know that. But yeah, we were talking about about Adelson and Las Vegas stands maybe being a little bit less prominent than some of the other subjects. So I'd be interested to hear you know your take on uh, on how things ended up that way. Well, it's been it's, it's that's been a big issue for in Las Vegas. I don't think I've done an, an interview yet with anybody in Las Vegas that hasn't been. You guys know. Sheldon Adelson so much better than than um, than the rest of the country that you're really aware of of what he's done and what he's brought to Las Vegas, which is not insignificant. But I think uh, who was who was who was just speaking because you got you nailed it. Who which, whichever of you that was that was me, Christine. It's Jeff Simpson. Oh hi, Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think what you said was true that 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 a. Sheldon is a really big personality, so he's colorful, and it's tempting to write about somebody just because of that. And he also has built an important property, and he brought this 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 one innovation, which was how to use the convention business to fill your hotel midweek. But in terms of trying to create a narrative for a book, including him, um, A, I don't know where you take it for the future because he's built out in Las Vegas. His growth is elsewhere. Um, and and B, there, he would have been. I could have gone, done a couple of chapters, but his his early work was not in Las Vegas at all. Um, he came in as a latecomer. He did something very significant. Um, you know, finished it. So you could you could do a chapter, but how do you carry that as a narrative while cluttering it up, um, kind of cluttering up a narrative that you have with three other people whose potential to shape the future of Las Vegas is much greater than what Sheldon Adelson's is. So that was my thinking, and that's kind of the conclusion I came to. Well, I uh, thank you. Um, I'm, I can say that I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how the book came about, how long you were working on it, and just sort of your experience in putting it together. Um, it came about because of those two big deals when, um, you know, the first Kerkorian buying Mandalay, and then so quickly right after Harris buying Caesars, and it, it caused me to kind of stand back and, and realize how much Las Vegas had had been transformed in the previous eight years that I'd been writing about it. Um, I hadn't put, set foot in Las Vegas before 1997, and it seemed big and crazy and amazing to me when I first got there. And eight years later, it was another city again. And I I felt always that that Las Vegas has been underrated as a city by most of the rest of the country, if not the world. Um, and, and, and I was very clear by three or four years ago that um, a lot of interest, business interest in New York, um, certainly literary interest, still saw Las Vegas as what it was 20 or 30 years ago and had no concept of, kind of what, the, what the city 
has become and is is going to like like is going to become in terms of understanding how to do business, how to market to people, being a financial center, and actually being, you know, a city, you know, a real city, a, a real metropolitan area. And so that sort of made me want to write this book and size it up differently than, um, you know, the, the the old sort of the old mob town that people love to write about. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I just I just I was thinking about this. So, you know, this, this book is coming out sort um, of back to back with uh, with another another Las Vegas sort of business focused book about the Tim Poster and Tom Breitling at the Golden Nugget. That yeah. there was no time coordination on that. All just just coincidence. I, I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't. I can't speak on their part. I didn't know. I got a copy of that book two weeks ago, and that was the first that I knew that it was um, coming out at the, roughly the same time as mine was. I have no idea how publishers schedule when books come out. I, I, I have to say that the book publishing industry is almost as much of a mystery to me now as it was three years ago. <laughs> it's been it's been a real learning experience. After uh, you know, my career has always been in newspapers. Um, and books is just another world, and I sort of, you know, rode along and and tried to respond as best I could. <laughs> well, uh, I, w- I have another question, and then I'm going to open it up to some of my uh, some of my other uh, guests here to see if they want to ask you anything. But, um, at, you know, right now we're at a point where there are several projects that are going to be coming online in the next several years that are uh, of varying size and scope, uh, some more ambitious than others, but all all significant. Um, what's your take on the stuff that's coming? What What are you most interested in, uh, and what do you think has the most potential to have a transformative effect? I, well, I, I guess I would probably choose City Center as having the most potential for for that transformative effect. You know, partly because of where it is, it's very central, um, and they've you know they got a, mo- a lot of money behind them, and they've the the retail is such an important component of that. And they have really been pressing it. I was shocked um, when I came back to the journal after writing the book, and I started writing about luxury goods. And um, I was was in Paris meeting with some of the executives from the big luxury goods conglomerates like Louis Vuitton, and they are they're all very interested in Las Vegas. Like you mentioned Las Vegas to them, and most of them have been there within the last six months and have a lot to say about it and start name-dropping the, the re- various retail executives in town. Um, and that was startling to me because that's another one of those things that just didn't happen you know, 10 years ago. Um, they had a hard time when they built Bellagio getting anybody to gonna be first, the first luxury goods retailer um, on the list. Um, so you know, and, and, and city center is a big part of big part of that. I'm I'm in, I'm really interested in in um, Glenn Schaefer's project, the um, the Fontainebleau, just because he, you know this, the art component that he has with using James Turrell um, to design a, quite a number of um, pretty important, you know, significant aspects of that, including a light fixture at the top. I think that's. Um, I think that's one of the, the types of elements that's going to force people who've been dissing Las Vegas for years to reevaluate. Um, you know, James Terrell is an artist who's you know very much in vogue now, although he's you know been doing his art for many decades. And um, people who 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 tend to look down on Las Vegas um, are going to have to approach it very differently when they know that James Terrell has been as closely involved in a casino project as he has. So I'm kind of even with a little humor um, and a smile on my face, I'm looking forward to to seeing that happen. 
All right. Well, great. Um, I will open it up to some of my uh, compadres here to see if uh, they have any questions. Uh, guys, feel free to jump in. Um, maybe introduce yourselves first so uh, so she knows who she's speaking to. Oh, come on, somebody. Yeah. Hey, this is Dave Schwartz. Hi, Dave. I've, I've got the question that, that I'm kind of curious about. So how did you leave it with Steve? Was he oh, right. panic with anger, or has he mellowed, or, or what's happened? Um, mellowed. Gosh, will that I I could see him at ninety five not being mellow. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine a mellow. It would be sad to imagine the the um. Well, he he was hopping mad last time I talked to him. Um, but it was about something had been something that had been published about my book before the book came out, and um, and he was just really mad. It, it all came back once again to uh, you know was Krikorian's purchase of Mirage Resorts friendly or or not friendly. And he really, really wants it to be understood that he sees it as a friendly deal. I just see that that is the most preposterous rewriting of history, I mean, known to mankind. He even said... so ridiculous. (laughs) He said at the time it was an unfriendly takeover. I tracked down the quote. It's... Yeah, and he said at the at the at that last annual meeting of Mirage Resorts, I'm sure some of you were probably there. I was, and I remember him talking about how it was you know it was hard to let go, and he had tried to keep the company but realized he couldn't, and so on and so forth. But you know what? I I truly believe that he believes now that it was friendly. I I, I don't think it was friendly. I know it wasn't friendly, but um, but. You know, it's, sometimes people can rewrite their own history in their minds, yeah. and he's well, not one to look back and, and ponder too much. I think he's he's made it what he wants to believe it and moved on. Why do you think that's so important for him, for, for it to have been friendly? Well, pride, right? To have to have somebody come in when you're down and take this, this baby that you grew. Um, I, I, I can't – I mean, I can imagine – I don't think I have nearly the same level of pride as as, as Steve Wynn does, but I I could imagine that that would be hard for me to take too. Christina, this is uh, Jeff Simpson, and I I think that um, I, I certainly would agree with you there. I think he has been, you know, since I've known him, he's portrayed that deal the same way he did it to you. But I think that one one another explanation perhaps could be the chronological proximity of his super sweet, maybe, I mean, in, in, in the number, in, and he's had so many of these kind of unbelievably great deals, whether it was buying the dunes, buying his little slice of land uh, in front of Caesar's Palace a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but buying the Desert Inn, the price he managed to finagle it out of Starwood, um, when you look at it now, um, was such a good deal. And being able to, you know, he he owned that, he bought it, um, and had the deal before he let go of the reins right. of, of Mirage. So in his mind, there's some overlap, and, and you know what kind, the kind of a forward-thinking design person he is, and I'm sure in his mind, he was already, you know, captivated by the possibilities of what he could do there. So, you know, I mean, it just may be some, you know, creative memory there. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, my, that, that would be sort of my perspective on why he looks at it that way. And, and when you look at what he's created and still has the land available to create, um, I can see, you know, I think, you know, he looks back on it 
and probably thinks, you know, good. <laughs> it's all good. So, you know, I mean, I, anyway. He was a he was an answered prayer for, for Starwood in that because they couldn't get anybody to take that place. Isn't that amazing that considering that now with that golf course, <laughs> that, yeah. that it was sitting there for sale for, I mean, I remember them, you know, tossing bits back and forth, and he ended up getting it for, for what now would just be considered nothing. Just a song. Yeah, they were trying to sell it to Marvin Davis, remember? And Saul had a deal, had an uh, option, and... and uh, you know, there were a, n- a number of, uh, like, sort of Las Vegas uh, flakes and kooks who were uh, trying to buy it as well, and and uh, nobody could, could could swing the deal. Much and then a couple years later, Starwood was trying to get back to Las Vegas. <laughs> Not very yeah. certain, like, greatest at, day. At a, at a much lesser property, the Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the West, and, and lately the Riviera. But I wanted to. This is David McKee. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, well, first of all, I'm having I have, have having tra- a terrible journalistic envy because on pages two seventy nine and eighty, in two paragraphs, you have more information about the Harris mega development than in those two paragraphs than than the entire Las Vegas journalistic community has been able to <laughs> ferret out of them oh. in three years. Uh, but has your opinion of Gary Loveman changed since the buyout and since he negotiated that gargantuan uh, uh, gratuity plus uh, golden parachute? Um, which and and what do you make of that? Where of that clause where he gets the golden parachute if he leaves after a year? It's it's as though they're incentivizing him to leave rather than stay. You know, I, I, and part of me just – I've seen those types of things in so many industries over 15 years at the Journal that there's, you know, there's a part of me that goes, oh, boy, again. You know, they just – it's just extraordinary how boards of directors um, and companies agree to do these things for each other. Um, I think, you know, I have sort of – I have various feelings about it. I think that – the those plans that were um were being so actively put together and I was the reason that I have as much as I put in that book was because I spent a great deal of time and 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 the folks at Harris were um very open about their development plans and so I was actually able to sit in on a lot of the development planning meetings for for months as they were doing that so and then I was was really bummed to when I realized that that all that stuff was not going to come to fruition anytime soon because they're so laden with debt in this in this deal that they're just not you know they're hamstrung with it. So I don't know how meaningful those plans are going to be by the time they get out from underneath the debt. The world is going to look different, and they're going to want to draw them up again. Um, I mean, one would assume assume that they would want to draw them up again. But you know, Loveman has been. I mean, it's been interesting to watch him adjust to go from being a Harvard professor to being a CEO, and it's been a great lesson for me personally. Since I've known him since before he came to Harris when he was just a consultant, and frankly, I think he was having a whole lot more fun in those days, and when he was chief operating officer than he has been um, since he's become CEO. Is you know, the CEO job at any company. Is powerful, but it's not as much fun as people imagine it to be. I have a question for you that I, you know, sort of connecting the dots. This in your book, there's uh, 
definitely uh, some discussion over uh, over Dan Lee's role at Mirage Resorts, and um, I don't think it's any secret that he uh, <laughs> wasn't all that sad to get out of there and do something different. I think he kind of thought Steve Wynn was a little bit crazy. Um, but, you know, this week we saw Ron Kramer leave Wynn Resorts, um, and from the press release it sure sounds like he's just going to a pseudo-family business and maybe there's no story there. But any indication that uh, it's anything that you could draw a parallel to the, the Dan Lee situation? Well, boy, it was the first thought that came to my mind, wasn't it yours? It was like mm-hmm. deja vu all over again, you know? Um, I don't know of any kind of a blow-up, and um, of course I'm not covering the company, so I'm not as – on, you know, as involved as I might have been in the days when I was covering gambling for the journal. Um, I did speak with Ron about a week and a half ago. It was before this announcement, and it was a, um, you know, a, a brief conversation, and he, at the time, he had mentioned not having talked to Steve in a while, and I thought to myself, oh, that's odd. I wonder why, and then moved on. I had no idea what was coming, so I didn't pursue it, and it sort of came back to me. Um, when I saw the announcement this week that that maybe that was more significant than I thought at the time. But I, I don't have any information about there having been some sort of a fallout. It just seems it seems odd, and it seems, um, you know, Kramer was really important to win in putting that company together and getting Wall Street's support. I don't, I don't know that Wynn could have done it without him. Mm-hmm. Well, and his contract, I believe, is is up either at the end of the month or very soon. Yeah, I mean, it may be that there's no story there, and it's just you know the way that things turned out. But or his option wasn't picked up, as right. they say. Of course. I have a question, um, Christine um, Justinson again, and uh, I, I was I was sort of surprised, and you know, I think among all the executives in Las Vegas, um, in, in for for MGM Mirage and you know I can, and you obviously talked to uh, all the guys at the top of that company um, Lanny Baldwin Murren um, I'm just I, I've I've always been taken by how circumspect Lanny and Baldwin always are and how outspoken Murren is and in your book you really have some outstanding examples of him practically chomping at the bit to. Um, you know, sort of um, disabused Steve Wynn of his notions of how the takeover went over, and 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 even how City Center will perform relative to their properties. And um, it, it's it, Jim Moran really, um, he you know, as you know, um, came out of a you know an analyst or a, a Wall Street background, and he's really uh, he's. You know, he seems like he might be a button-down kind of guy, but he's not. At least in your book, and um, and I found him to be that way too. He he is not um, sort of a demure kind of executive. I just thought maybe you could expand a little on um, some of your key sources in the book um, um, that you talk to: Dan Lee, Jim Murren, Alan Feldman, um, and uh, maybe uh, some of the guys um, at Harris as well. Well, Gary Jacobs, by the way, at, at MGM Mirage, is, was also really helpful um, and, and was also um, extremely helpful in, in disabusing um, anyone of any notion that this wasn't – that the, the Mirage deal was, was friendly. I mean, you know, Gary was one of the, um, you know, the, the early um, people strategists in, in how to go about a takeover long, long before they decided to launch it at the time that they did. Um, you, you want me to? You want me to say who? Oh, I just wonder. I just, just no. I just wondered. 
you know, you obviously had, so, you know, Murren, Dan Lee, um, some, some of the key folks who were um, really helpful to you in putting together the book and maybe um, what, what you enjoyed about or what you found um, to be interesting about their perspectives. In particular, I think, uh, you know, Murren, Lee, Feldman, um, and maybe Gary Loveman himself, um, I, I, you know, I found to have, you know, they, they were pretty frank, and uh, I just, I, I, I enjoyed um, reading what they, what they had to tell you. Yeah, I think in each, each in their own way, and one of the things that amazed me about Jim Murren's, um, you know, willingness, and, and they were all, at, you know, in various ways, very willing to help me, which I appreciated, of course, but, you know, Murren's openness about, about how, how aggressive his own career plans are, I mean, he wants to be the head of the company, and, um, and he was disappointed when Terry Lanny had planned to retire and then changed his mind because it was a, you know, a setback. And Murren was saying, "I'm, you know, I'm not getting any younger here. Um, I'm, you know, I, I want to move on." And and he had some indications from Kirk Corian that he would he would be the next guy. So it, it shocked me to see him being as open about that. Um, but it, it really enabled me to understand some of the power struggles that are happening. At that company, where they're all, you know, you know, you've got several people who, and Bobby Baldwin also, you know, aspires to, to, to run that company someday. So it'll be interesting to see how that come out. D- Dan Lee, um, you know, I, I actually believe that if Steve Wynn hadn't fired Dan Lee, that he wouldn't have lost Mirage Resorts. I, I think that was the, the crucial early mistake in everything um, for him, and things snowballed after that. But Lee has, he has an incredible character. I mean, I, I, I've never seen anybody who sit up all night long reading a 600-page Bond document with great relish, like he will. And um, so to get his, when you sit down and you talk to him about you know, what has happened at that company over time, he remembers financial details from 15 years later and what practically what page number they were on. And he, he does everything with such a intense and detailed research that um it you know it gets it's just a joy to watch him kind of going through it and of course he was able to remember things that had happened years before with such detail that it really helped me lay it out in in a narrative format well uh, um i uh uh, thank you for being on the show. You, we're, we're creeping up on the one-hour mark, so there's one more topic that I want to discuss that's not directly related to your book, but I'm hoping you'll stay on and give your I'd, two cents. I'd love to, to stay on, and thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that uh, this is an easy recommendation, but anybody that's at all interested in gaming uh, should definitely pick up this book. It's called Winner Take All. You can get it at Amazon in any bookstore. Um, it was, it's a fantastic read, and uh, it's a real, it was a real treat, so thank you. And the, the last thing that I wanted to go over, actually, this is submitted by a reader, and it, it's covering the general concept of overbuilding at the high end. So he, he made the comparison uh, between mid-90s building of um, a lot of – obviously some high-end properties, but a lot of mid-range rooms, comparing that to the boom we're seeing now where there's a large focus on building luxury properties. And – this is a this is a undercurrent I hear from time to time. People concerned that they're being as consumers priced out of the market, or um, you know people that watch the industry being concerned that 
the that they're focusing too much on building at the high end. Uh, is this a real problem on both sides of the of the of the spectrum, for both for consumers and for these companies? Or is there a, going to be a rude awakening where you're going to get a room at uh, Echelon for forty nine dollars at some point? Or how is this going to play out? Is this all, or is this just uh, people being worried and the the economic engine of Las Vegas will never fail? Hunter, uh, this is uh, Christina. This is uh, uh, Chuck from Vegas Tripping. I haven't uh, spoken since you popped on the call, so you know my voice. Um, I, you know, I, I did a little bit of thinking about that, and I think the market is pretty much going to bear bear it out. Uh, you know, the the properties that were in the middle are going to fall down to the lower. Uh, you know, I've been uh, getting more uh, uh, from MGM Mirage. I've been getting more uh, Spanish language marketing materials for. Uh, Treasure Island, you know, so that's going to start moving more towards the, uh, you know, the the circus circus kind of model, you know, more lower middle income families and things like that. So, you know, it's, it, I think, you know, other properties are going to start going down to, to fill in the niche that, that is going to need to be filled and the upper properties are going to be uh, so, you know, so Mirage is the Luxor of today, basically, is what you're saying. People get moved down a moved down a rung, and the market sort of sort of sorts itself out. It's a brutal yeah. way to put it, but yeah, <laughs> I completely agree to that, with that. And it, it couldn't be better news for Las Vegas as a tourist destination, or for the tourists who are going there. I mean, the last thing you'd want to do is have kind of cheap icky rooms put up, um, you know, artificially propping up the, the the not as nice but more expensive rooms. What you want as a tourist destination is the good stuff to be built, and then have a trickle down. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Young needs to uh, take a lesson there because I think that's what <laughs> what what they were going to do. Um, I I agree with, in general with the idea that there will be a pecking order move down as these new properties at the high end come on, and I and I expect that there are probably all these people seem to believe that the market will be able to grow at the top end, but I think that. You know, at the same time as you see that pecking order change, it's, I, I think that the market as a whole is evolving into a uh, into more of an upscale destination. So I think that you know, as Las Vegas has become a place where the people with larger amounts of disposable income are willing to consider for more frequent visits, and uh, you know, those people are the kind of folks who are willing to spend not just on the on the uh, hotel room, but also on the nightclubs and the retail and, you know, the spas and stuff like that. So I think that, you know, there will be a a pecking order change, but I think that the key to the strategy is that because there is going to be so much capacity right at the top um, that they, that the market grows that sort of appeal to, the uh, the luxury the the upper middle class and higher traveler um, and I think the question for me is how these companies can do in terms of building properties to appeal at the high end there really haven't been too many operators who've successfully done it um, in Atlantic City against exceptionally lame competition Borgata's <laughs> done Borgata's done very well. Um, Wynn has built several properties in succession in Las Vegas that have done it, Mirage, then Bellagio, then Wynn. But um, you really haven't seen – I mean, Sheldon gets in there and is sort of like at the level 
just below the top. Um, but I think that, you know, and, and presumably because I think Bobby Baldwin and the MGM guys, my, my hunch is that they're going to do quite well with city center. Um, I expect encore to similarly do well. Um, but I think the, the question is, um, whether Fontainebleau, um, will be able to get right at that top part or whether they will peg slightly below and, you know, the, and whether the Boyd folks will be able to come in and compete in a much tougher market in Las Vegas than, you know, they had in Atlantic, than they have in Atlantic city. So those are the question marks for me, the, the, the echelon and Fontainebleau, but I, I have a lot of respect for Bogner, a lot of respect for, Glenn Schaefer. So, you know, I, I mean, I would expect that they'll do well, but I think that if there is, if there are question marks, those would be the ones I'd have. Well, I've got three thoughts I'd like to try to make real economically. One is that as the the current uh, bargain and middle market properties are displaced by the Treasure Islands and Parises of the world, the middle market and bargain shopper is going to be getting a better quality of product than what is being displaced. Secondly, the the very high high end, uh, which uh, the question was asking about, is the last segment in which we're seeing erosion so far. And third, I think when Steve Wynn says that he spent over a million dollars to build a hotel room, that that's a marketing draw. That I think in P, instead of people feeling envious that that cost more than their home, that they they want will want to experience that kind of luxury. I think that's that's shrewd marketing on his part. Yeah. Now, um, there's just another thing that I think is a very interesting factor, and that's uh, what's going on in Southern California with the expansion of Indian gaming there. They, in the last round of referenda, they've just added several thousand slot machines, and it looks like some of those casinos are going to make a play to really attract a lot more of the Southern California crowd that has been coming up to Vegas. So I don't know how good of, a, how good of an investment a casino hotel that's going to be built mostly on bargain-seeking drive-in gamblers would be. So I think in a lot of ways it makes sense to put more of your eggs in the fly-in upscale basket. Right. Well, as, as someone who lives in Southern California, who uh, occasionally will make the trip out to the desert because uh, the trip way out to Vegas is a little too much, you know, unless they have destination uh, attractions, which uh, the Viejas Indians <laughs> tribe has – uh, they own Viejas Entertainment, which is a huge network of uh, uh, theaters and amphitheaters and booking agents uh, in Southern California, and they bring concerts and whatnot out to the desert so at their property. So there would be a reason why people would want to or have to uh, stay overnight due to drinking and driving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, whether or not it's going to be a destination, you know, you could build the greatest hotel out in, in – uh, I don't know, Paula, Temecula, but, you know, people who want to go to Vegas are going to go to Vegas because the synergy of the people and, and the properties and, and right. the site, you know, you just can't beat that with one hotel tucked in a crevasse between yep. a bunch of desert mountains. It just it doesn't, it doesn't match. Yeah, and Las Vegas gets people to go for a longer stay, which is it's got enough entertainment and stuff going on there. You're not going to go out to Viejas and stay for four days. Right. Once. You know, I've got a problem. A, got one question for Christina. Given the, the fact that these the banks, uh, the Goldman's and Deutsche Banks of the world, are no longer just 
underwriters on the strip, some of them are actually owners or part owners, given the current credit meltdown. What do you think is going to happen? And I'll, I'll extend that to say, with you know, this week we saw we saw rumblings on both the Cosmopolitan project and this sort of rumored slowdown on the Plaza project, which doesn't look like it's actually true, but as, as adjuncts to that question. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's it's for the people who've gotten their financing in place already. They're of course they're wiping the sweat from their brow and with smiles on their faces. But you know this, these, the numbers that have been out there about the tens of thousands of rooms that are about to be built in Las Vegas are you know you, you could probably cut those by a half or even two thirds. There's a lot of projects that aren't going to get done, and that's probably a really good thing. I mean, you know, the, the usually. Usually the markets don't work that efficiently, and you get periods of terrible overbuilding. Um, but this this might actually have come at a good time for Las Vegas in terms of not not getting the, the level of overbuilding that they might have. I think we should say, in fairness to Deutsche Bank, that they're an involuntary casino owner. What was <laughs> Eichner having screwed up so badly? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. What a way to be a casino owner. What possibly? What are the possible outcomes for? The cosmopolitan. Well, I think you know, Mur- Murin sort of said uh, we look at it at the right price. You know, that, to me, that sort of means like if things get really bad and we can pick it up for nothing, we wouldn't mind having it. Uh, it's such a terrible. It's such a terrible little wedge. It's, right. You know, right. It ha- it's you know right up against the jockey club. It has it has one of the terrible casino design elements where they have to stack their public areas up. And anyone who's visited Atlantic City or the Aladdin, the original of the Aladdin, and um, you know when they originally put their their London club up on the second floor, people just want to leave. People, yeah. Well, you know the the, the Macanese um, customer has been more willing to leave the ground floor, and a lot of the even the successful casinos there get their high end VIP customers up even to the top of their hotels. But in Las Vegas, in the, in the United States, customers don't want to leave the ground floor. And, uh, you know, unless the Cosmopolitan has some uh, new motivation for uh, our uh, our lazy brethren, I, I think that it's it, it's going to be a very tough property. Um, when I asked Wynn about that property, he said he can't imagine an established operator wanting to get in there. Now, of course, Mer, you know, for everything at a price. I mean, I could almost see at, at the right price, MGM Mirage, you know, getting rid of the thing. Right, um, making well, a parking lot. What Mur- what Murren isn't saying now is that um, it was a mistake that they don't own that already. That They actually, I mean, they were looking and buying up property and keeping an eye on what was going on very closely, and they actually missed the fact that that property went for sale and were gnashing their teeth at the time. I mean, that that actually would have been critical to the way they designed City Center. So, yeah, I mean, they, they you know, far from just wanting it at a at a good price, they've been dying to have that piece of property for a long time and would would love to get their hands on it. Clearly, the Jockey Club, if it can't even be displaced by you know Bellagio going in, that thing's there forever. Oh, but when the property values start falling, especially well, if you're on the back end of it and you're looking straight into the you know the front of the Cosmopolitan. I mean, and it's not absolutely certain that the Jockey Club would be there forever. Certainly, Harris has tackled a number of 
timeshares and the property they bought behind their wall of East Strip casinos between those casinos and Koval. Um, but, you know, it, it's tough. And that's one of the things I think that's interesting about these condo properties. Um, it makes it difficult for, you know, every three or four decade redevelopment of properties because all of a sudden you have, you know, instead of one owner sort of master planning a property, you have hundreds or thousands of owners. And, you know, if it's timeshare, you know, God knows how many you'd have. Indeed. I think we're going to leave it there. It was a great discussion. Um, I want to, Christina, I want to thank you again for joining us and, uh, and definitely once again recommend your book, Winner Take All, to anybody out there listening. Um, I'm going to go around the table and uh, let these guys say where, uh, where people can find them on the web. Um, okay. A reminder that this show now has its own website at VegasGangPodcast.com. Um, so let's go around. Chuck, where can people find you? Let's see. Uh, I'd say MacauTripping.com this week. All right, excellent. Uh, Dave Schwartz, how about you? Um, Dieiscast.com this week. Dieiscast.com this week and for the near future. All right. <laughs> David McKee? Oh, ranting five times a week at uh, LasVegasAdvisor.com. Excellent. And Jeff Simpson? LasVegasSun.com. Excellent. And uh, you can find me at uh, RateVegas.com. And once again, thanks to everybody. Have a fantastic weekend.